Pray with me, please. Dear God in heaven, we come to you in prayer today to ask you to help us find a balance in our relationship with you 
a balance between your power and person on the one hand and your compassion and love for us on the other. Whenever your servants in scripture came into your physical presence, whether by vision or proximity, they were overwhelmed by your power and glory. Moses' face glowed so brightly that no one could look upon him. Isaiah was reduced to a sinful, undeserving human, and the Apostle Paul saw things it was unlawful for a mere human to see. Help us remember this, dear God, when it appears that evil humans are getting away with terrible atrocities and the slaughter of innocent lives. Help us remember your promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This promise takes a huge burden off of our shoulders. We want to right wrongs on a global scale, but are powerless to do so. With your promise of divine justice in the future, we can instead concentrate on the advice given by the Apostle Peter for what kind of people we ought to be now. He said to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, because it will usher in a new heaven and new earth. So help us, dear Father, to balance a healthy fear and respect for your power and wrath with the indescribable gift you have given us in the person of your Son, through whom we have the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of a resurrection like his, and the security now that we, in your church, will not be subject to your coming wrath. As we call you the great creator of all things, Abba Father, we ask that you teach us your ways so that we, in turn, can teach others of your power and love. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today. We're happy to see you here. Just a quick reminder, this Friday we have our family fun night at 6.30. Uh, we're going to have crafts, food, and lots of fun for the family and the kiddos. So mark your calendars this Friday, 6.30 p.m. And another quick reminder, on your way inside, you should have received a Connect card on which we have a, um, um, a Connect card right here. Um, and then on the back, we have a, a prayer card as well. If you're joining us for the first time, I'd like to encourage you to fill out the Connect card. Uh, let us know who you are. Um, we'll help you get connected to the church and get you plugged in. Um, and also, uh, we'd love for you to also fill out the prayer card. Um, let us know how we can pray for you during the week. You can take uh, these cards over to the boxes just outside the sanctuary, along with any uh, tithes or offering envelopes. You can just drop them on, on into the boxes uh, by the wall. And with that, I'd like to invite up Pastor Steve. Lead us in a message. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're having a good summer. It's amazing to think that we're more than halfway through summer now. I'm waiting for summer to start. I mean, it, it's, half of it's gone, and I haven't been paying attention. I hope you're having a, a good summer. We're talking about the God of wonders. Uh, and if you were around La Jolla this week, uh, you saw some incredible wonders with the waves. We had a big swell coming in, big waves uh, in La Jolla. I don't know if you saw that, uh, if you see pictures of it. Uh, big waves instill fear and wonder and awe. Uh, when you're standing out there, uh, depending on where you want to go, wind and sea, if you're out there by the cove, and you're seeing these big waves come in, you think, oh my gosh, massive. 
massive. Uh, some of you know Dan Mashburn. He was up here praying a couple weeks ago. His son Christopher is a big wave surfer. And so if you want to see some incredibly hairy, gnarly, uh, inspiring waves, go Christopher Mashburn Mavericks. Mavericks is way up north. And it's insane to see the massive, massive waves. Uh, he was last year in Portugal uh, checking out St. Um, Nazare. Nazare has some of the largest waves in the world. It took so long to get big wave surfers from Hawaii to go there because they were afraid. Uh, have, you know, f- people who surf in Waimea or, or the e- uh, northeast side of Maui, uh, Jaws, these, wa- these waves that come up and you think, how do these things happen? They are so big and so intimidating. And people like Christopher say, and I love it. It's fantastic, right? They can crush you, they can kill you, or if you ask Christopher, he'll say, but they can make you feel intensely alive. So the God of wonders, I mean, you might say, well, those are all natural forces. Yeah, those are, of course, natural forces. But these are the things that when, when people worship the stars or the winds or the waves, uh, the air, the sea, uh, fire, whatever they worship, if they're worshiping a created thing, they're, they're, they're missing the big show. They're missing the, the main event. That is the one who created it all. And yet, even by worshiping those things, they're indirectly, indirectly worshiping God. They don't know they're worshiping God, but God takes all credit for that, because that's what He does. Just let that settle in. The God of wonders. We get so inured to wonders. Part of it is that we're so insulated and isolated from those wonders. Especially here. Now, we have two seasons, uh, school and summer. Uh, you don't have winds that make the snow go sideways here. Uh, and if you've ever been in a snowstorm when it's, the, the, the snow is parallel to the ground, you think, this is serious weather. Uh, if you've ever been in, in proximity to, I hope you never are, in proximity to a big, big fire, shocking how big fire can be, uh, how fast fire can move, to feel the intense heat, and you're not even that close to it. Uh, so anyway, the forces of nature are impressive. compares nothing to the God of wonders who made it all. Uh, and so this idea that, that these big forces can instill fear in us is just normal. I mean, it's a normal, natural response, right? Crush you, kill you, but also inspire you, right? If, as long as you're far enough away that it can't get you, can't hurt you. So let me ask you the question, what are you afraid of? What scares you? What scares you? Uh, sometimes you don't know enough to be scared. There's things that you could or should fear that you're, you're not even aware of. I remember walking in, in the, about 8,000 feet, beautiful alpine part of, of the Trinity Alps, which are northern California, up in Humboldt, known for the beautiful rivers and fly fishing and dope growers. Uh, there's a larger economy up there than anything else we do in the state, unfortunately, but up in the Trinity Alps, magnificent, beautiful mountains, and I'm walking along this trail behind a group of people ahead of me, and it's a skinny trail, and it's very exposed, and it's like a, you know, a rock field going this way up to snow-covered peaks and then down into beautiful valleys. As I'm walking along, uh, I see all these people walking by a small bush, and as I'm walking up to the small bush, I just happen to glance. There's a big rattlesnake sitting in the bush because it was a hot part of the late afternoon. So the rattlesnake is just hanging out, and, and within an 18-inch, 2-inch proximity to everybody who's just walked by, and so I'm, I'm cracking up thinking, oh my gosh, they didn't know enough to be afraid. If, if anyone, if, for example, if the first person in line had said, oh my gosh, there's a snake, nobody would have walked by it so nonchalantly, right? So, so fear is really a factor of, are you aware of what you should be afraid of? Are you aware of what you should be 
afraid of. Uh, one time um, when our, our eldest daughter was six, she wanted to go to uh, rollerblade camp, Camp Snoopy, up in uh, Sonoma. So me and some other guys took our kids to go to rollerblade camp, Camp Snoopy. And um, so on the way home, it's, it's me and Lauren, and uh, she's asleep in, in, in the car because it's Olight 30. We're going to drive all the way back down uh, to Newport Beach. And so um, I think oh, I better get some gas. So I pull off and I pull into Oakland and uh, Oakland can, is, is a beautiful place now, very expensive. Back then, it was not so. And so I pull in to this gas station, and my first clue is that the sign on the, on the pump says, pay at the window. Like, okay, so I walk over to the window. It's so thick, it's discolored and scratched. And a little voice says, I'm like, what? And basically slide the money under the... And then I realize, I look around, and I, I, it's scary. And the guy behind the window is scared. And I'm thinking, I have a six-year-old sleeping in the car while I get gas. And now I'm thinking, I wasn't so much afraid for me or even for her. I was afraid for what would happen when Janet found out. <laughs> you did what? I knew my life would be in danger, but it would be delayed. You know, what are you afraid of? What are you aware enough of that you are afraid of? Or what are those things that aren't even in proximity to you, but you are afraid of? Events that you see possible in your future. Factors and forces in the world around you. What are you afraid of? Uh, everybody is afraid of something. What evokes fear in you? And why do we have fear? Well, we usually are afraid of things that could hurt us. It could take something from us. I mean, change. Even when change is potentially good, we're afraid of change. Why? Because for, for all people, uh, change is either uh, you know, gain or loss, or sometimes it's both. You've got to lose that so you gain this. If you've ever tried to talk to a sad kid going to first grade for the first day, but I want to go to kindergarten, you know, yeah, I know it was an awesome year, but you know, you're going to hit it out of the park in first grade. What causes you to be afraid? We usually fear things that will hurt us. It's also possible to fear things that are good for us, right? It's often possible to fear things that are good for us. It's possible to fear good things. That's, put your head around that. Why do we have any level of fear in that way? We're afraid of things that hurt us. We're afraid of things that could even actually be good for us. Because we live in a fallen and broken world in which it's absolutely normative, it's normal to experience fear. It's a sad thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, all of you who are of a certain age know that when you got up in the morning, you had breakfast, and then you would be, had to be home by dinner. You're out there playing, running around. We do not let kids do that anymore. If your kid is away from you for more than you know, five minutes, you're thinking, oh, no. Uh, I was with a four-year-old recently, and four-year-olds, I didn't realize that this is such a big deal for four-year-olds, it's been so long since we had one, uh, uh, that, that they, as soon as their mom is gone, they're like, hey, where's my mom? They're afraid if their mom isn't in eyesight. Why is it? Because we live in this uncertain, uh, threatening world. We're afraid of bad things, we're even afraid of good things. I think about the person who was at the mall, uh, wherever it was, I don't know, Illinois, I guess. I don't know where it was. And uh, recently, and the shooter comes out. And this 22-year-old guy 
wearing shorts and a t-shirt, pulls out a gun, a 9 millimeter, and protects everybody around them in the, in, in the mall and takes out that guy. Can you imagine anybody going to that mall again? My point being that uh, fear is just endemic to who we are. You can't get away from it. And, and the worst kind of fear in some ways is not just for you being threatened. It's for you on behalf of somebody you love. We get so freaked out. Um, that's why Janet and I moved into the dorms with our kids and they went to college. It was just a normal, <laughs> reasonable thing to do to get a family suite, interview all the friends, supervise all the activities, and we were welcome the entire time. So it worked out fine. Uh, you've probably had the same experience. So here's, here's one aspect of fearing something that is good for you. Uh, and it comes out of Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. I learned a variant on this in first grade. The fear of Sister Mary Margaret was the beginning of all wisdom. It would be really wise if you don't mess with uh, Sister Mary Margaret because she had this awesome, fantastic instrument. It looked a lot like a yardstick. Really what it was was a version of open carry in first grade. Actually, it was second grade. Because uh, they set me up in first grade, it was really fun. But second grade, also, it's like, whoa, it's dangerous at school. Because I'm in the presence of Sister Mary Margaret, and I learned really quickly that fear is the first step toward any wisdom in surviving this environment. Now, it really wasn't oppressive fear. It was just the normative fear of corporal punishment. And um, So, different, though, than what Proverbs 1-7 tells us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Why? Because the fear of God involves right-sizing our understanding of God and ourselves. The fear of God is simply a call from Scripture, from God through Scripture, that we should right-size our understanding of who God is and who we are. This is not, you better be aware of your angry father, your uncertain mother, this mean teacher, this you know, bully on the, on the block. We're talking about something outside of our normal frame of reference, and it, it, it takes a while to get your head around a phrase like, from Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And this is very off-putting in our culture, this idea that one should fear God. We've so lost the fear of God uh, that we fear everything that we don't need to fear because of <laughs> losing the fear of God, actually. So counterintuitively, because we don't fear God, we fear a lot of other lesser things that we really don't need to, but we do. Uh, how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's great series of books? If you haven't, whether you're an adult, uh, not too late to read them. If you have kids or grandkids, awesome books to read to kids. Brilliant, brilliant books. Here, written you know, by a professor at Oxford University, uh, at the risk of having all of his friends go, really, seriously, that's the best you can come up with? Uh, it's been a force of nature since they came out, I think, in the, in the 50s. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis introduces us to the Pevensey kids and this character uh, featured throughout the whole uh, series of books, Aslan. So the kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, first hear of Aslan through Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver. And they have somehow gotten into this um, place called Narnia through a cupboard, a wardrobe, in a house. Uh, I was just talking to our youngest daughter, Megan, this week, and she said, oh yeah, so we got to go hang out at C.S. Lewis's house. And I, I didn't, I held back any father humor about kidding about wardrobes and how is Narnia, 
But it just made me think of it. Oh my gosh, yeah, you know. So there it is. You're in the house, and there's a. She, yes, there was a wardrobe, you know. But so they walk through this. They end up in, the, in this place called Narnia, and they have this adventure. And and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking about Aslan because you've had some close calls already. They're thinking, what is going on in this place? And so Aslan's name is invoked, and and Lucy. Uh, assumes that Aslan is human, but only to discover that Aslan is a big lion. And you've probably heard this before. Lucy asks, well, then isn't he, he isn't safe. And if he's a lion, he isn't safe. Normative thing to say. I love seeing lions as long as there's a big ditch between me and a fence between me and them. If you've ever seen a big cat in the wild, it is unnerving. Any big thing, I won't tell you stories about grizzly bears and moose and other things that I've seen out there and thinking, what a knucklehead I am to have myself in this situation where I'm in this close. And it wasn't because I wanted to see it. Uh, I was just happening you know, out there in the, in the beautiful, idyllic, nothing can go wrong in nature that we all enjoy. But when you see these things up close and personal, it's unnerving. And so Lucy's response is normative. Oh my gosh. <laughs> He isn't safe. I thought you talk about Aslan in such fantastic terms. If he's a lion, he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this sets us up to say, okay, can't wait to meet Aslan, whoever Aslan is. And then in the last chapter, after, after you go through all these adventures in this first book of, I think, seven books, uh, it says, amid all these rejoicings, when, when these children have now become kings and queens of, of Narnia, amid all these rejoicings, Aslan himself quietly slipped away. And when the kings and queens noticed that he wasn't there, they said nothing about it. For Mr. Beaver had warned them, he'll be coming and going, he had said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not a tame lion. So as we're talking about this God of wonders, we've talked about the fact that God uses processes and plans. Uh, uh, We've talked about various aspects of that. Today we're talking about the fact that God is not tame and not contained. This is a different version of God than most people either in the church or in the culture think exists. We tend to think of a God that we can contain, we can tame, we can put him in a box, like a genie in a lamp, to change the metaphor. A God that we can control, and when we can't control that God, it bugs us. When we've established the clear rules, transparent, should be obvious, and God violates those rules, we get angry. We're frustrated with God. And so Aslan, this Jesus figure in the, in the series, is powerful, wise, fierce, untamed, uncontained, good and kind. So theologically, we know from God's revealed word to us, Scripture, the Bible, God is always loving and always just. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, I can think of some examples. Well, no. Let me give you the big framework, the context, the proper setting. God is always loving he is always just. And, 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 if, and if we had time, I would love to take any of the most outrageous examples you can think of from the Bible and say, well, what about this? And I think we, without sounding like I'm you know, finessing something or 
smoke and mirroring something, but they would be able to say, here's the context here. What is not loving and just about what God is doing? Let me give you one example. Uh, not from Bible, but just the, 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 the questions we ask. If there is a God, how can there be a God in a world where evil exists? The other question related uh, is that it just ticks me off that God doesn't do anything about evil. Uh, and that God has wrath. They talk about the wrath of God. That, that really ticks me off. What kind of God? I wouldn't believe in a God, God of wrath. Wait, you don't want evil in the world and there's a God of wrath. How do you put those two things together? We're going to explore that a little bit in this God who is not tame or contained, but is good. He's the king, I tell you. Pardon? Okay, so God's always loving and just. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not ours. And this makes us curious. It makes us uncomfortable, sometimes confused, even angry, because he's not safe in the way that we want him to be safe. So a God we can't tame, we can't contain, or control is unsettling, unsafe, offensive, and scary. Oh wait, that's what, God, that's what qualifies God to be God, isn't it? He's not tame, he can't be contained. He's beyond us, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Wow, what do you do with that? Well, what the Bible tells us is that God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, fancy words, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's holy, uh, and we're not. But he's not a pet. He, he's the king. His holiness is literally, literally awesome and fearsome. Awesome and fearsome, but he's good. Those things don't usually go together for us. Awesome and fearsome usually means I'm going to be threatened, I'm going to be suffering violence, some crazy person in my face, if you've ever been on the wrong end of a gun, you notice like to look at somebody and think, I hope they don't hiccup or sneeze right now. You know, I, this is a scary situation. This is unpredictable and, and looks pretty inappropriate. This person's going to do me violence. If you've been ever in a, in a situation where you realized you were going to be mugged or robbed or whatever, uh, uh, you know how terrifying that can be. So the fear of God, though, that the Bible talks about is authentic, awestruck, trembling, reasonable fear, not a wink and a nod. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I feel tempted to, and I've heard other people try to, downplay the fear of God. Well, that just means we respect Him, and yeah, of course it does. But it's also true that if we were in the presence of God, we'd be fearful. If you're body surfing at St. Nazare, because you're having a wonderful vacation in Portugal. And all of a sudden, people are screaming, screaming, come out of the water. And you're like, yeah, what? I know I love it in the water. No, come out of the water. And, and as you see a shadow coming over you of a 70-foot wave, literally. All of a sudden, you, you would have a different view of you know, playing on the beach. Awestruck, authentic, trembling, reasonable fear. Not a wink and a nod. The wink and a nod is like this. Hey God, tell you what, you pretend to be Almighty God and I'll pretend to fear you. You pretend to be Almighty God, I'll grant you that, and I'll pretend to fear you. But you and I both know I can put you back in the box, back in the lamp, 
back in the drawer, back on the shelf, whenever I want. And so what happens when we finally come in contact or in, in, in touch with this idea that, okay, there might be a holy God, that at some point in time, even though I'm in his presence, I'm not afraid, because I'm not aware of his presence, but at some point, if it's true that I might be standing before him, oh no. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. See, sin causes us to hide from God in fear and shame. You see this in the, the, the origin story, the Genesis story, the, the creation story, Adam and Eve. They've betrayed God, now they're hiding. And he's calling for them in this beautiful place, the garden. And he says, why are you hiding? Of course, he said, we're naked and ashamed. We still have that feeling, we still have that response. And then at the same time, godly fear humbles us to trust God. We feel attracted to him and safe with him in the, fact, in the face of the fact that we know he's fearsome and awesome. And so we fear many things, right? We live in a world that routinely breaks our hearts, so we fear much. And so why wouldn't we fear God? That's why there are hundreds of don't be afraid messages in the Bible. Literally hundreds, several hundred at least, uh, messages, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Fear not, invoked throughout the entire Bible. Here's an example from Isaiah where the word fear isn't mentioned, but Isaiah's fear is obvious. Now Isaiah went on to be this famous prophet, and he has a big chunk of scripture dedicated to him, often uh, quoted in the New Testament. So I, Isaiah is this reigning presence in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But Isaiah wasn't always that reigning presence. At one point he was a young priest in the presence of God in a worship service. And you know how worship services can be just absolutely predictable to the point that you're going, okay, all right, a little long today. Hmm. Uh, and so it says here, he's going to describe this worship experience he had. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. So in the midst of worship, I see. Now the ironic thing here is that he's in the temple and if you're in the temple, you expect to see God because that's what Israel said, this is where God abides. This is his place. Why wouldn't you expect to see God in his place? But it wasn't necessarily the case. And so here's Isaiah just doing the normal drill, reverently, respectfully. And when he has his vision, it's unnerving. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't know how you would feel in that situation. Uh, I would feel like, oh my gosh, I am in the wrong place. I, I don't deserve to be here. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And what does it mean to be of unclean lips? Well, I praise God at one moment, and I'm cussing out somebody the next. You know, James picks us up too, right? My eyes have seen the king. 
the Lord Almighty. I've seen something I didn't expect to see and I probably don't deserve to see. Maybe I, how did I get this glimpse of the glory of God? I just came to church. One of my favorite signs in Bethlehem is at the Church of the Nativity. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've always found this funny. There's a, there's a sign that says, uh, no questions in church. No questions in the church. And of course not. No questions in the church. But that's the whole point. What am I doing here? What does this mean? How could you not have those questions? Now what's going to happen to me? I've seen something I don't think I'm supposed to see. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. Now there's a fear moment. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Don't, don't do, don't. He didn't burn my lips off. Well, that's the idea. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Oh, that's right, no questions in church. Whom shall I send? Who's worthy to go and talk about my glory, my greatness among these people? Who will go for us? And much to his chagrin, I'm sure, Isaiah said, Me? <laughs> no, he said, Hineni, here I am, send me. Where did this burst of confidence come from? He was a trembling, quivering mass of fear a moment before. It's the same place your confidence comes from, having been in the presence of God and experiencing the fear of God and being cleansed by the presence of God through His Holy Spirit. And in our case, we talk about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that we so easily take for granted, at least I do. All of a sudden, you're filled with this confidence to say, well, when I walked in here, I wouldn't have thought so, but I think I can do this. If you did that, and I'm included in that that you just did, sure, I'll take that message out. Why wouldn't I? Why would I hold back on this message? That was a rough go for Isaiah after that, right? Because if you haven't had this experience, it's pretty hard to take it seriously when somebody tells you about it. But Isaiah had a profound ministry, a very difficult, challenging ministry. Isaiah went through a, a, a lot of pain and suffering to be faithful to his response to God. So it wasn't easy, but all of a sudden he wasn't afraid of anyone anymore. Odd, isn't it? Because in some ways, psychologically, if you're not afraid, uh, you're in a dangerous place. Little kids aren't afraid when they run out in the street. When somebody says, hey, I'll give you a ride. Hey, your mom just told me to pick you up. Jump in the car. Kids are, are unafraid. They have to, and then they learn fear. But the person who understands everything going on and is not afraid. It's either a Clint Eastwood movie, either it's a Jack Reacher moment, it's somebody you know uh, is going to get out of an Aston Martin and adjust his tie and walk into the, into the casino and go, hey, perfect, all the bad guys are here. Let's chat. It's when Patton, in the, in the harshest days of World War II, was told by his officers, uh, General, we are surrounded by the enemy. He said, I pity those poor buggers. It's not out of touch with reality. It's saying there's a larger reality that informs me and who I am and what I do. 
So if God is love, why fear Him? Well, because as we grow in His love, our awe of Him increases. At first it's a cringing fear. Dear God, I'm undone. Oh, you are God. I'm undone. It's over. Until you realize, no, that's not what this is about. He's embracing you and drawing you close and saying, you are my beloved child. Why are you running from me? Why are you hiding from me? So as we grow in his love, our awe of him increases, as does our comfort in his presence. Later in that series, the Chronicles of Narnia, in in the the feature about uh, Prince Caspian, uh, Lucy Pevensey, now on another trip going back into Narnia, uh, sees Aslan. She thinks it's a big giant stone statue until she gets close enough and realizes it's Aslan. And so she, she throws herself at him and embraces him. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, she says. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is what the fear of God does. It fills us with awe and wonder, delight, love. It can evoke laughter or tears. If you were in the presence of God, literally, you might just fall apart in tears because you're saying, it's so good. You might just start laughing hysterically going, it's so good. God is perfect in holiness, justice, righteousness, compassion, tenderness, and mercy. Perfect, fully complete, lacking in nothing. You can't improve on Him. There's nothing more annoying than a person who acts like they're perfect. There's nothing more inspiring than the God who is perfect. And so all creatures in His presence are holy, righteous, loving, and just, or they wouldn't be there. Well then, let's come back to that question earlier. What about God's wrath? How does that fit in here? Is that His dark side? No, there's no dark side to God. Oh, no, no, the yin-yang thing. You know how that goes. No, don't impose really small human categories on the awesome God. Well, you know, if there's a light side, there's going to be a dark side. You know, like Satan is one side and Jesus. No, there's not even an equivalency there. Uh, When you turn the lights on in a room, the darkness goes... There's no dark side to God. God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all, the Apostle John tells us. His light is revealing. Uh, when the light goes on in a funky place and the cockroaches run away and the, and the, the mice and, and rats run out, that's one kind of effect of light. Somebody doesn't like it. When the guy's trying to break into your house and the lights go on, they don't like it. So God's wrath is His holiness confronting evil. There is no sin in Him. It's hard for me and us to get our heads around this because in my anger I'm more prone to sin. And in your anger it's usually attached to something not noble. It takes an amazing and mature person with a big EQ to express anger in a way that isn't destructive. And so since God is perfect in every way, His wrath is righteous and appropriate. It's we that need to change, not Him. 
We need to change our understanding of who He is based on what He reveals about Himself. Otherwise, what we will constantly and continually do is project onto Him all of the, the stuff that we carry in us, trying to make sense of the world. Well, this must be that. We'll, we'll make up stories to try to explain who God is. And so many times I've had conversations over the years with somebody who's telling me about the God they don't believe in. And at some point, they'll say, well, what do you think about that? Expecting me to be defensive. And I say, you know, the God you just described, I don't believe in that either. I don't know that you really have a clear sense of who He is. Can I show you some things that might shed a light, shine a light uh, on who God says He is? Uh, the, the, all those guys around the elephant, it's a waste of time. At some point, somebody's going to say to the elephant, well, still tell us, what part am I touching? What are you? Who are you? And the elephant goes, well, here's who I am. Here's what's going on. Oh, thank you. Because the, the blind guys are not going to come up with anything other than a collected bit of, of you know, ignorance attached to arrogance. Job's friends were not helpful. So God said, Job, Job, let me right-size things for you. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Oh, oh, okay, I get it. There's a larger frame of reference here. Yes, pay attention to this. So God's wrath is His goodness, His holiness confronting evil. This is the response to the person who says, I can't believe in a God who allows evil to exist. Okay, you're on the right track then. God's not for evil. Yeah, but the, the wrath thing, I just can't handle that. Any God that would, well, wait a minute, which do you want? Apparently, he's pretty good because if he is a God that is against evil, it's a long time coming that he makes things right in this world, right? And the problem is, as soon as I say, you know, Lord, I think it's time for you to take care of all the evil people, all of a sudden, I realize, to my, to my chagrin, that I'm being shepherded over to the group of evil people side. Well, no, not me. I can rationalize and justify my evil. My evil is really good, actually, because it's well-intended. I didn't mean for that. I meant, you know, things happen. Stuff happens. We're masters of rationalization when it comes to talking about evil in the world, our complicity in it, and the wrath of God. Which way do we want it? Ah, I know. I want it my way. Even the hamburger people tell me that. I want it my way. I should get it my way. But since God is perfect in every way, His wrath is righteous and appropriate. It's efficient and effective. He's business lingo. We need to change. Jesus is God incarnate. Being in Christ means being remade in God's image. That it means the best version of you in Him. So, we read, Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the death comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Which side do you want to be on? If you want to be made alive, come to Christ. It's not exclusive in the sense that you can't come. It's inclusive for all who come. John says it again this way, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be ultimately has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. All who have hope, this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It's doing the wrong thing. 
But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No, he's a category of one. That's why it's so hard to have a conversation, because immediately you want to compare him to lesser things. Things in our own making. Things are just like a bigger version of us. And so I, we, fail properly to understand or ponder the implication of this. To ponder the implication of this God who has overcome so many things to come into the world he created and to reach out to us. And so we dismiss it as silliness. We find ways to categorize it so that it doesn't matter to us and we're not included, we're not accountable. Because why? We're afraid to encounter God. We are afraid because we are convinced we will not measure up and it ticks us off. And it's not fair. But he wants to make it right. And the question isn't, is it fair? Well, I didn't do the original sin. All right. If it was up to you, you'd still do your own thing. But God wants to make it right. And so if somebody asks you, I can't believe in the fact there's an evil world and you say there's a God, or that there's a God who has wrath. Just There's one verse you can pull out, not as a club, but rather it's just a way to say, you know, maybe this would help start to organize your thinking on this. Uh, Paul writes to the Romans, first chapter, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, there, there you go. It doesn't have to include you at all. The wrath of God only applies to people who are ungodly and unrighteous and suppress the truth about what righteousness is. That's all. So you don't have to be in that group. The wrath of God insults me. All right. It's not for you, apparently, because you are a person who is godly and righteous and is trying to uncover the truth about God's righteousness. So if that's you, then you have nothing to worry about. Why are you upset? Oh, you're being funny with me. No, I'm not being funny with you. I'm just saying, this is the description of it. What don't you like about the God who's going to remove ungodliness and unrighteousness from the world? No more babies that are abused. No more people who are crushed by more powerful people. No more, no more lying or stealing. No more betrayal. No more broken hearts, broken minds, broken bodies. What's not to like about that? Well, we don't need God to do that. Oh, really? You don't need God to do that? You're going to make it a better world? You know what they said at the beginning of the 20th century? Finally, all the wars are behind us. In 1917, it was like, whoa, 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 what is this all about? Well, that's the war to end all wars. That's done now. We can move on to the beauty of human potential. And then World War II happens. And then Korea, and then Vietnam, and a thousand and one little skirmishes that don't matter to you and me, but the people who died actually did matter to them and their families. And it continues to this day. We all know it. So we could all tell our tale of woe about how this ugly thing called sin has touched us, robbed people you love of their capacity to love, caused people you care about, maybe yourself, to self uh, medicate to avoid the incredible pain of living in a broken, fallen world. And yet it's, it's a head fake because it looks so beautiful and inviting, doesn't it? So rather than denying God's wrath or resenting His wrath, let's rejoice that Christ delivers us from it. 
Christ is for all people at all places at all times. It's, it, this, is gonna, this blows our mind in the Western world. When brothers and sisters, followers of Christ in Asia, Africa, Latin America, say to us, you know, have you guys thought about Jesus? Have you guys thought about accepting Jesus and walking with Jesus? I, I beg your pardon. We're the ones who sent the missionaries to tell you. Right, so if you send them to us and we're finding it true, we're just reminding you what you said to us. Why wouldn't you want this as well? The most alive part of the gospel is outside of the United States and outside of Western Europe. Western Europe and the United States are perceived as mission fields for people in South Korea, Eastern Africa, Western Africa, Latin America. Does that shock you and offend you? Or does it wake you up and make you say, what am I missing that they're coming to tell me about that in a sense I have right in front of me? I love the way Peter said it, Second Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He also says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything um, done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It does get better, but not because we get better, because he is better in us, making it better for us. Now notice that God isn't threatening us in these passages. The person who's already heavily defended against God will say, see, he's threatening us. All this fire stuff. He's warning you. He's calling you to safety. He's not threatening you. He's comforting you with a promise to make you new. To give you the life you yearn for, you were created for. To right all those wrongs that you can't let go of that you've either committed or have been committed to you. He wants to set you free. What don't you like about that? What, what, what do you prefer to that? I mean, of course, if you don't like God's version of things, it'll be threatening to you and make you resentful. But what's your alternative? What does a holy and godly life look like in this present time? The one we're describing here is, is an oasis in the desert. It's a safe place in the midst of the flame. It's a shelter from the storm. The alternative is grim. Who wants a family or friends who are unholy and ungodly? Can't wait to find an unholy girlfriend. I don't know what I'm going to say to my mother when I introduce her, but mom, dad, it's the greatest thing. I met this ungodly guy. He's awesome. What? An atheist would be concerned to hear that from their kid. Well, how ungodly is he? Not a Republican, is he? Don't tell me he's an independent. No. The alternative is grim. Nobody wants unholy, ungodly leaders or an unholy, ungodly spouse or child. Holiness is walking in God's love and grace. What's there not to like about that? Think of anything that ever has given you true, true, authentic delight and joy. That was something that God made possible. 
Godliness is our character shaped by God's influence. What's there not to like about that? It's not a fake or idealized persona, but rather the most real and honest version of being you. And that's why when they talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the result of this kind of life, it's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, tenderness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, tenderness. There's nothing against that. There's nothing wrong with that. Self-control. And so holy people are actually very confidently humble people. Hey, it's a gift from God. I would, I, the only way to explain me is God in me. And i got a long way to go. Godly people are curious and interested in others' welfare. If you're a person who says, I, I know so many Christians who aren't that way, well, it's not you to judge, but I just, I don't know, maybe they're using the name Christian without connecting to the reality. I don't know. But people who are holy and godly are confidently humble, they're curious and interested in the welfare of others. They can't meet everybody's need, but they care about everybody's need. So it's believing that God is now here, working in us through His Holy Spirit, blessing us to bless others, making it possible for us to feel blessed and to bless others. It's developing new skills and new patterns for living in this world. They look very similar to maybe the ones we're already doing, but they're a better version of it. It's applying the promises of God's Word. And as we entrust ourselves to Him, He disciplines us, creating inner strength in us, and He develops us, giving us things we otherwise wouldn't have. And it isn't easy, but it's good. Why? Because He's good. He's God. And we're learning to live in His kingdom right now, one day at a time. So Lord Jesus, I pray that You'd meet us wherever we are today resisting you, defending against you, frustrated with you, running from you, embracing you, celebrating life in you. Meet us wherever we are, Lord, and help us see the next step as we learn to walk with you in newness and fullness of life. Yeah, to fear you is to be overwhelmed and so aware of your awesome majesty. It takes our breath away, and yet you draw us close in your embrace and you call us your beloved. Lord, help us to understand that fear is the beginning of all wisdom because it leads us into a relationship of love and transformation with you. So we thank you and praise you for a chance to reflect on this together as your people. We pray this in your high and holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, let's wrap up our worship time uh, by presenting ourselves to the Lord. This is our version of, a, of an offering. If you want to give financially to the church, we, we appreciate that. You can give uh, this little box there. You can send a check. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, if you have a big tax issue, you sold a big pro- piece of property and you have to get some tax relief, we're here to help. But right now, what this part of the service is about is offering you to Him, wherever you are. As I just prayed, let's offer ourselves to Him as we worship Him and, and I'll give a final blessing at the end of this time.
For a blessing, a benediction to everybody here sitting out in the Welcome Center, sitting out in the patio, watching uh, online. 
And then for those of you who are here, I want to invite you to go get something to eat, uh, or maybe before that, go get a prayer uh, in, in the prayer garden. If there's something you would like uh, prayer for, for you, or for something you care about or concerned about, there's people there who will have a brief prayer with you. It's super uh, nice. It's not awkward. It's not weird. It's just a great gift to have somebody say, sure, I'll pray for you. Um, it's, not a mo- it's not an expression of weakness to say, pray for me. It's saying, hey, I want to draw on all the resources available to me as a follower of Jesus. Uh, get something to eat, and then at 11, come back here because we're going to do conversations, which is a really fun time uh, to respond to some brief videos that are super stimulating. We're in this whole series about science and faith and how that comes together. Um, it's really a neat time. So welcome uh, to come back to that. No, it's about a 45-minute thing. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.